Jesus is risen. <laughs> In a minute, we are going to read First uh, Corinthians fifteen twelve through nineteen. It's going to be our passage. I've entitled the message this morning, "If," but if you look at the notes, it says, "Not Kipling's If," which is a great poem, by the way. But uh, I just felt like I should put that in there, so I'm not accused of plagiarism or something. But before we read that passage, I want to establish a little context for that passage, because 1 Corinthians 15 um, is right after 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 14, we're, we're highly theological here, and that chapter, chapter 14, is kind of a tutorial on what, on what should and should not be happening in a church service. That's what that passage, that chapter is all about. And what was going on in that church, because Corinth was a very wild uh, town, and so a lot of the people brought that wild disposition right into the church, and the church became kind of like this patternless cacophony of chaos, where things were, people were just going wild within the church service. And I have to say, I've walked into services like that that were kind of scary. People rolling in aisles and just you're wondering what in the world is going on. That chapter ends with very basic counsel. 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let all things be done decently and in order. So, you know, this needs to make sense. This shouldn't be just us getting together and winging it. There's got to be some level of order to the gathering of the church. Of course, things can be done very orderly. Things can be done in a very organized manner, but still be cold and lifeless and meaningless. The fact that you've set the table nice doesn't necessarily mean that the meal is going to be delicious or nutritious. So in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul gets to the heart of the matter. He's, he's going, look at Things got to be done orderly. They've, there's got to be some structure. People walking in need to know what's going on. But we've got to recognize the heart of the matter. In chapter 15, we get into what you might call the main course of Christianity. You see, the church had seemed to forget, or at least it was being threatened, the gospel. The, the essence of what made them a church of what made them Christians, was being removed from the heart of the equation. The gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, we see the gospel. That's kind of a big word in Christian circles, the gospel. And the gospel itself was being sidelined, or at least that was the threat. But let me be a little more specific. It wasn't just the gospel. It wasn't just the good news But it was the good news of the resurrection within the gospel that was now being sidelined. The Apostle Paul chose to address this threat with this little word, if. This little conditional conjunction. Actually, it's what you might call a contrary to fact subjunctive clause. Uh, Let me explain what that means. Um, it's this, usually that kind of clause begins with the word if, and you've got this kind of condition of possibility. Um, 
Fiddler on the Roof. How many of you are familiar with that? Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. And there's a song in there where Atevia is singing, If I Were a Rich Man. You guys know that song? Yeah. If I Were a Rich Man. That's a contrary fact conditional clause because he's not a rich man. But if he were a rich man all day long, he would bitty bitty bum. <laughs> Not even have any idea what that means. But you get the idea. You know, you're, you're creating this situation where you're going, if this is the case, then that would be the case. Well, that brings us to our, our passage. And you're going to see the word if in here quite a bit. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Hear now the word of God. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, of all men, the most pitiable. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand glorious things, to understand the hope of hopes, the the centrality of the resurrection and the good news of the gospel. I pray that my words would be clear, and I pray that all in this room, all who are listening, would be uh, discerning. And we do pray, Father, recognizing this, that unless you open eyes and hearts, unless you open ears that these things will remain confusing to us. But we do pray, Father, that you would do just that and help us to understand that which is right and true and glorious and eternal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with kind of a philosophical question here. Have you ever considered what makes you, you? I mean, if if you were to engage in some form of like self distillation, what would have to remain, essentially, in order for you to remain you? All right, so let's start, let's start down this road a little bit. If you, if you were to get a haircut, remember, I used to get haircuts, like, but if you were to get a haircut <laughs> or trim your nails, right, that's part of you, you know, you'd be like, well, yeah, that's, but I'm still me. You know, I've lost a little hair. I've lost my, my nails are gone. What about, what about if you lost a limb? What about if you lost an organ? Are, are you still you? We'd all say, yeah, I think, yeah, if I lost an arm or a finger or something like that. It all seems pretty obvious, but let's push it a little further. If you lost your ability to hear or see, or let's push it this way, to think clearly. People develop this sense that they've lost their identity. On our prayer list, we have dementia, we have Alzheimer's, and you begin to kind of go, and that that person is losing who, who they are. 
we develop this sense that they've lost their identity, we'll, we'll say things like, it's just not him. It's just not her. They, they've lost a sense of themselves. There's another angle to approach this, this question of self-reduction, when we ask, how much of me can be boiled away, but I still remain? I want to push it to the, the angle of skills or talents or contribution. This idea that you, this is how you identify yourself. I was a champion. I remember years ago, I was um, watching a volleyball tournament. I actually was play, playing in it, but it was far enough in the tournament that I was out. And I'm watching other guys play. And, um, and there was a, a very vocal game going on, a lot of talking going on. And it was a young, up-and-coming team playing against an older team, and the older team had actually been champions. They had won the Open before. But the dialogue was going on, and the younger team was being brutally and very disrespectfully honest. And finally, one of the older guys looked at his you know, young antagonist, and he said, you know what? There was a time when you didn't even belong on the court with me. And the young guy wasn't going to have it. And he said, those days are over, Bobby. <laughs> and I, part of me felt bad. Because both those guys were friends of mine. And I, you know, but here's the deal. The young up-and-coming guy, I still know him. He's like pushing 70. So his day is over. <laughs> It's been over for a long time. I don't doubt that if either one of those guys, and they're both alive, but if either one of those guys died, that the newspapers would record that a volleyball champion had died. You know, they, they tend to reduce us down to what we were best at. But it doesn't have to be so high profile. It doesn't have to be so dramatic. You don't have to have been the champion of the world. How do you identify yourself? Who are you? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a mom, a dad, a worker, a citizen? Are you an artist? Are you a musician? What is it that kind of makes you you? Because I think it can be enormously difficult to lose that and wake up thinking that you still matter, that you are still significant. The one thing that pops into your head and you're going, this is who I am. If that thing is gone, are you still you? My, uh, my more wealthy friends, you know, who don't have to worry about careers and advancement, they tend to say, I don't know why it's the wealthy people who say this, but I'm sure many of you might feel this way as well. All that matters is family. That's all that matters is family. But what if you lose your family? Which inevitably is going to happen. Are you, are you lost? 
Can, can you sing with Horatio Spafford, the man who had lost his family, it is well with my soul? Yeah, I'm emotionally disrupted. The, the sea billows and the waves are pounding me around. But I know who I am, and it is well with my soul. Could you still sing that? Is who you are something that is so unextractable that no matter what is taken away from you, you still remain? Now, let me get back to the passage, and we're not going to get into minute detail, but I don't think that we just read. But you don't have to be a scholar to understand the point of the passage to make the conclusion of what's being taught in this passage. If this one event, the resurrection, is extracted from the Christian faith, if you remove that from the Christian faith, the Christian faith is not the Christian faith. It's lost its essence it is not like Christianity got a haircut or Christianity had you know, its nails cut off or even lost a hand or a limb. With no resurrection, Christianity has lost its soul. It's lost its essence. Paul makes it clear. If there is no resurrection, primarily of Christ, but of us as well, then preaching is empty. What I'm doing right now is a waste of time. Faith is empty. What you believe is vacuous. Not only that, not only is preaching empty, what I'm saying is false. We just had, you know, the ninth commandment, right? This, uh, if, if there's no resurrection, this is all one big lie. Not only that, let's get kind of more palpable here. If that's the case, we are still in our sins. And then he gets very... Um, almost poignant and emotional here because when he, he goes, not only are we still in our sins, but the loved ones we have who have died have indeed perished. And then he pushes it even further, especially, especially in the context of first century Christianity where to be a Christian meant almost certain death. He says, if we have in this life hope in Christ, now, now if, he's, if he's just a life coach helping me through the day, if he's just kind of a philosophy of thinking and of morals and on and on, if that's all we have, then we are, of all people, most pitiable. Without the resurrection, everything that the atheist is saying is true. Ricky Gervais, how many of you guys know who that is? Ricky Gervais, he's a British comedian. And he had a, you know, Golden Globes a couple years ago. He gave kind of a, I have to say, it's a guilty pleasure of mine to watch that. <laughs> you know, he just kind of derailed all of Hollywood in one eight-minute speech. And I think a lot of people enjoy that. But he's an atheist, right? And so, you know, you got to take that as far and recognize he makes a statement in that speech where he says, we're all going to die soon and there is no sequel. In other words, there's nothing after this life. So I guess we're forced into a decision. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I think he's funny and he's clever, no doubt a smart guy. But you have to decide, I have to decide, am I going to believe Ricky Gervais or am I going to believe the Holy Scriptures? Now, I think it's amazing that's even a contest, and yet it is a contest. Well... I'm going to push this a little further than the atheist. In our 
class we're going to do next month on, you know, Christianity 101, we'll touch on this. You saw it in the question, what is unique about the Christian faith? How is it different from all other religions? And I think it is. So I'm going to push a little further here with what the Apostle Paul is teaching. Because it's not merely the atheists that he's addressing. Corinthians wasn't written to atheists. It was written to a church. It was written to religious people, people who believe in God. If, if we do not have the resurrection, every world religion, and you'll hear atheists say there's 10,000 religions, which is just false. You can't just in a minute make up a religion and go, I'll add that to the list. There, there's really a very few world religions. But ha- having said that, apart from the resurrection, every world religion and let's push it beyond, because I know in our minds when we think religion, we, we kind of narrow it down to Judaism, Islam, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, and what have you. Maybe, you know, we might add, uh, you know, Buddhists or what have you, or Hindus. But not only every world religion, every system of thought. No resurrection. Every system of thought. Every philosophy regardless of how seemingly erudite. I was listening to a lecture, an interview actually this week, and you know the person being interviewed was brilliant, and they were very influenced by Aristotle. And you listen to that, and it's, it's um, intellectually impressive. So you've got these very impressive philosophical systems. But every world religion, every philosophy of life, and let's push it this way, because this has become a religion, and it always and inevitably does become a religion when, when governments become too big. Every political structure, regardless of its power, its budget, its armament, its influence, all of these things, you can add whatever you want to that list, all of it, according to the Apostle Paul, becomes meaningless apart from the resurrection. Apart from the resurrection... We end in death. Ultimately, apart from the resurrection, we're just matter in motion, right? We're molecules flying through space. We're we're carbon-based hominids rocketing to a futile and meaningless oblivion. That's what we are, apart from the resurrection. No wonder... So often the worldly pagan religions are eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die. Get as much out of it as you can today because tomorrow there is no sequel. Now, it seems to be, like I feel the room. And it's like, wow, Pastor Paul, pretty depressing. I think it's Paul's point to contemplate no resurrection and be depressed about it. I remember a few years ago, I did a debate with some atheists in, at uh, Biola, and, you know, I made the mistake of reading the uh, comments, you know, on YouTube after the debate. I'm, I know they hire people to, over, to write negative things, but there was one statement that I thought was, <laughs> was remarkable. It, because during the Q&A time, I gave my definition of hell. And somebody in the, in the comments said, 
Pastor Paul Vigiano's defini definition of hell sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hell. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, really? Because I'm pretty sure no matter what I said, it's not as bad as hell is really going to be. But I think that's Paul's point. He's trying, to go, he's trying to go and look at You need to begin to recognize how meaningless it all is apart from the resurrection. I think it's no wonder that throughout history so many intellectuals who really take the time to dig into these types of things while rejecting the resurrection become self-destructive, depressed, suicidal nihilists. You know, you, you start reading about these brilliant artists, these brilliant people, and then as you continue to read, they kill themselves. Now, I don't want to relegate that only to the intellectuals, because I think in any given society where you have departed from the truth of the hope of eternity through the resurrection of Christ, it's not just the intellectuals, it's the kids, it's everybody, and they begin to realize that my life means nothing. Now, how much you no matter how much you try to tell me to have high self-esteem, if I'm merely a cosmic accident, those are empty words. And the Apostle Paul is warning against that. He goes, no, no, no. That hopelessness is only true if there is no resurrection. If there is a resurrection, everything becomes a different color. So let's move on, and let me ask this question. Why, you might be asking, is the resurrection such a big deal? I mean, why is it the heart? Why is it the main course? Why is it the soul of the Christian faith? And let me just add this, by what I mean by resurrection. Because I've come to realize that there are things that I take for granted that I shouldn't take for granted anymore. By the resurrection, I'm not talking about having a new lease on life or you know, having positive thoughts. Or I'm talking about the actual birth and life and physical death and resurrection, coming back to life of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the resurrection. And I want to ask, why is that such a big deal? But I also want to ask that question in light of this, that Jesus isn't the only one in the Bible who comes back to life. So we have to distinguish between the resurrection of Christ even in the Old Testament, right? Elijah and the widow's son, he brings that baby, back, that child back to life. Even before Jesus, Jesus and the widow's son. Or even the apostle, not just, it's not just Jesus, even the apostle Paul teaching a Bible study and Eutychus falls asleep and falls out of a three-story window and, and dies. Keep that in mind, those of you who are dozing off right now. Because I don't have the ability to bring you back to life. If you're done, you're done. But he brings them back to life. But even in Matthew 27, we see a bunch of resurrections. There's all, there are many resurrections in, in the Bible. But the resurrection of Christ is significantly different. It is unique. It is not like the other resurrections. Because in order to appreciate the resurrection of Christ, we must appreciate the death of Christ. Of course, you're like, well, wait, then those other people die as well. Yeah, but they didn't die the way Jesus died. They didn't endure what, the apostle, what uh, John, the Apostle John, will call the second death, that eternal death. In that death of Christ, if you and I were there watching, like all the other apostles, it would appear to be a massive display of failure. Our Messiah has failed. 
So much so, right, that when the women came back and said, he's risen, and they're like, eh, I don't think so. No, we, we've, we've lost. Maybe, we, maybe we'll get something out of this. But we have truly not a massive display of failure. What we have in the death of Christ is the effectual completion of salvation. It is finished, he said, on the cross. Everything I needed to do, I have done. Now, we don't have time to get in to what this is, means, you know, maybe at another time, maybe some of you will understand this, but in his death, Jesus pays a price that you and I could never pay. In his death, Jesus becomes a curse that the curse might be lifted from us. In his death, he satisfies divine justice, which could only be satisfied by one who is himself divine. We in this church quote 1 John 1, 9 all the time, God is faithful and just to forgive us. I mean, we, we kind of go, well, I understand. I understand that he's faithful, that he's merciful, that he's gracious, but just? You see, in order for God to remain just, sin and death was not something he could just ignore or wink at. And he, he, he can't do, he can't forgive the way we forgive. God is just, and justice must be satisfied. When I was in high school, there was a uh, Taco Bell right down here on Torrance Boulevard, Pacific Coast Highway in Torrance Boulevard. Not in high school, I was in, I was in elementary school. All food items, 19 cents. And my buddy Van got a job there when we got into high school. And he used to give us free food. We'd go in there, Van would give us free food. Now, I was, my mind wasn't even thinking this way. But he wasn't paying for the food. He was giving us free food. We said, thank you, Van. But ultimately, we and Van were stealing from Taco Bell. That is not the way God treats sin. He doesn't say, look it, it's okay, don't worry about it. I'm gonna pretend, I'll pretend it never happened. Those of you who are parents, I'll bet you've done this. I know I have. I see my kids misbehaving. I'm going to be very vulnerable. Don't be judgmental, okay? <laughs> I'll pretend that I didn't see it. Because I know that if they know that I saw it, that I would have to do something about it. I would have to be dad. So sometimes you're like going, you know, and my wife, she knows that I know, and so she's like, no, let, let me off the hook. you got to deal with those kids. And I, you know, and, you know, so we get into this battle of who's going to deal with the kids. But I'm the dad, and it's my responsibility to deal with the kids. All this to say that God does not look at sin and go, I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. I don't, I don't see it. La, 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 la. No, sin and death had to be contended with. The price had to be paid. Justice had to be met. There's a verse in the Old Testament that if you don't understand the Christian faith, it sounds like a contradiction where it says, God will in no way acquit the guilty. Well, wait a minute. Aren't we all guilty? That's what the Bible says. 
So you're saying that God won't acquit us? Empty, heaven's going to be pretty empty. Well, no, because the price has to be paid. And our guilt is put upon Christ. And his righteousness is given to us. That is the good news. And this is what is paid in the death of Christ. This is the death of Christ. In a world where mass communication has landed so many of us to deny that there could possibly be one single truth or one single right, it's almost as if God has providentially not allowed false religions of the world to teach what we learn in the Christian faith, and that is, in the death of Christ, we have the death of death. The price has been paid. All of this in his death, but it is by his resurrection, Peter writes, that we are begotten to a living hope. This is also something unique to Christ, that he rose again from the dead is a display of his victory. And his victory, and this is the good news, becomes a victory for all who by grace through faith call upon his name. And have you called upon the name of Christ? And if you have, his victory becomes your victory. Had Jesus remained dead, like all other religious, philosophical, and political leaders, it would not have been the conquering of death. It would have been the yielding to death. It would be as if he went and bought us a present, but never delivered it. But he was raised, the Apostle Paul writes, because of our justification. He was raised to make us righteous. John Calvin taught it this way. In his death, the death of Christ, sin is taken away. By his resurrection, righteousness is renewed and restored. It is, there was, they made a movie about the gospel when I was a kid. It was called The Greatest Story Ever Told. I don't tend to watch those movies. But it truly is the greatest story ever told. It is the good news. It is the best news. But this victory is not just news. It needs to be accessed. You can't just watch it on your TV screen. Somehow you need to become part of this good news. Let me, let me present this by way of analogy. A religion devoid of the resurrection, is still a religion. But there is something terribly wrong with that religion. Similarly, a person devoid of Christ, a person who has not accessed the victory of this resurrection, they're still a person. They're still made in the image of God. But there is something terribly wrong. And you know what? I think most of us, if I can use this emotional term, I think most of us feel it. Most of us can feel something is not quite right. 
at some level, we know that if we have tied our identity, who I am, to the weak and shifting sands of this vaporous creation, rather than the solid rock of an immovable creator, we know something is not quite right. I think we feel it in our, in our minds, in our souls, or however you want to kind of parse that out. And I have to say, I know for me, I, I feel it in the environment more than anything else of a memorial services. I, when I was younger, I did a lot of weddings, and now I do a lot of funerals. Hundreds and hundreds of funerals. Some believers, some not believers. Sometimes in church, a lot of them at the beach. And you can feel the, the emptiness in some of the words that are spoken, just sad, bitterly empty, empty words by people who are seeking and doing their best to assuage the pain of the moment. They get up and they're trying to, they get up and you can feel them going, I need to say something to make this better than, than it is. And I have to say, you know, as, as somebody participating, I find it heartbreaking it's heartbreaking that there's just no hope. We, we all experience grief and sorrow. But there's a difference between grief and sorrow accompanied by despair versus grief and sorrow accompanied by hope. I mean, just recently I did another service and, you know, a buddy of mine got up and, again, well-meaning, albeit hollow, effort, I'd never heard this one before, but as he said it, I realized this is kind of, it's like omnipresent in almost every pagan memorial service. He, he said, you know, what we have to understand is that there are three deaths. I don't know, I, I had never heard this. How many of you heard of the three deaths? Yeah, maybe it's new. I did do a little online research, and I did find it, so he, wasn't, he didn't make it up, obviously. The first death is when you die. The second death is when you're buried, and the third death is when you're forgotten. It's, it's, very, it's poetic. I get it. And you're trying to kind of make the most of a situation, but I'm like, I don't know the name of my great-grandparents. They're forgotten. I don't know anybody who knows their name. I think Solomon, King Solomon, who was gifted as the wisest person who would ever live other than Jesus himself, he said something about that. I think he, he contends with that, that folly when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2.16, For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. I mean, he's, he, truly, there's nothing new under the sun. He's just going, you could talk about remembering all you want. But they will be forgotten. And if you're, tie, if you're tying your hopes into that which in a generation or two is going to be forgotten, then we end up where the Apostle Paul wants us to be apart from a resurrection, and that is recognizing the meaningless of our existence. 
I don't think he's trying to be unnecessarily insensitive when he writes this. I think he's trying to get us to think a little more deeply about who we are. He wants us to think more deeply about where our hope is. In the same way, the gospel loses its essence with no resurrection, we, as part of this fallen humanity, have lost our essence. We have lost our true identity as children of God. There's something wrong. And if we have not accessed this, I think there is something very real about our discomfort. And I think we know it as we grasp for our identity our fulfillment, our peace, our happiness, as as Spurgeon put it, by simply plodding around this narrow globe, seeking the straws and the crumbs that fall from the table of this fallen world to somehow satisfy that which can never be satisfied in our hearts and souls. And, And we live in a culture that's just doing that. We're grabbing as much as we can and holding as little as possible, and it all ends nowhere. We will ever be discontent until by the grace of God, we become who God has called us to be. I don't think it can be said any better than Augustine, you know, in the fifth century, when he wrote, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Now, finally, how is this true rest, this true peace accessed? I'm like, you know, you can't just kind of watch it on TV. You need to make it yours. How does that happen? I'll use a word, one of the most misused, misinterpreted, misunderstood words that we see wafting through our culture. It is accessed by faith. So let's just for a second talk about that. Faith. Because you'll hear this, oh, blind faith, as if, as if your faith means that you are kind of abandon all reason, abandon clear thinking, and, you know, hold your nose, close your eyes, and jump into this pool that you have no idea where it's going or where it's going to land you. That is not what faith is. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is not the implementation of some doubtful Hope when we get to the end of our human reason. That's not what biblical faith is. It might be interesting for you to know that the word faith in the Bible and the word believe in the Bible are the same word. But you might go, well, yeah, that belief is just kind of, it's, it's flimsy, Pastor Paul. It's just kind of this word hanging out there, you know, that's kind of going to blow in the wind in whatever direction we want. And that is not what faith is. Let me tell you right now, whether you're a believer or not, you have faith. I was watching an interview um, with Ayn Rand and Mike Wallace. You guys know Ayn Rand, you know, Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Brilliant as far as she goes. She's got some real um, holes. But she was, you know, atheist, another atheist. And... Um, he asked her about faith, and it was kind of a wild, it's an old interview, like from the 60s or something, you know, black and white. He's smoking a cigarette interviewing her, you know, like those old interviews are kind of fun to watch. And he, of all people, is kind of going, 
you know, he's like an apologist for the Christian faith, which is its own stunning thought. But he asks her about faith. She says, I do not have faith. You know, she's from Russia. She has this accent. I do not have faith. I have conviction. And I feel like a lot of people kind of, that's their thinking. But what she didn't understand, at least in terms of a biblical definition, is that word, faith, belief, can also be translated conviction. It's what you hold to. It is the means by which you evaluate whatever is put before you. Right now, some of you are evaluating me right now. And now you've got to kind of ask yourself, by what standard am I evaluating whether or not what he's saying is true or not true? That's what you have faith in. That is where your conviction lies. If if you're saying right now to yourself, I think he's off. Now, I will, and I might be. You know, I'm I'm not canon. I'm Pastor Paul. I'm not the Apostle Paul. Right? I could be making a mistake. But if, in fact, that is true, I want to ask you, by what standard are you evaluating whether or not what I'm saying is true? Because that's what you have faith in. That's what you believe. That is your conviction. And I dare say, all of us have it. You can't function in this life apart from some conviction. But I'd also say a lot of people don't really understand or know what their ultimate presupposed faith or conviction actually is. Well... Friends, in order for us to be a people with a glorious and unextractable identity, our conviction must be set toward the resurrected Christ. That his resurrection might be the first fruits of our own resurrection. You've got problems? Let me tell you your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is you're going to die. Every other problem you have is small compared to that problem. And when that problem is answered by the resurrection of Christ, let me put it this way, all your other problems come under order. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all that other stuff, it will be taken care of. First, Things first. His life must be our life. Now this, I'm going to finish with this, because it might appear almost initially kind of counterintuitive that the means by which the thing we are to do in terms of our faithfulness is that our old man has to die. I mean, it's pretty drastic. If you read about, if you read people following Jesus, he was not into the half-stepping it. He was not, yeah, try me for a while and see if you like me. You know, that was not the way Jesus interacted with his followers. The way he interacted with his followers was, your old man needs to take up his cross. Now, if you saw somebody walking with a cross in Bible times, where do you think they were going? Yeah, they weren't going to the health club. They weren't going to see their life coach. They were going to be crucified. He says, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Instead of grasping for the crumbs and the straws of the table of this life, Jesus tells us we must die. He said it this way in Matthew 16, 25 through 26. 
For whoever desires to save his life, you know, whoever wants real life, whoever wants a true identity will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Apostle Paul builds on that in Romans 6, 4 through 6, where he writes, and this is, this is to be our mentality. This is where he's kind of going, this is where your thinking must bring you. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into his death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And then he explains why. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, the old man dies, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. I know that's pretty meaty stuff for Easter. So I'll just ask you, will will you cling to that old life, which is not life really at all? Or will you let that old life die and cling to Christ. Which would you have? Would you have the victory that ends in a matter of weeks or months? Friends, because the victory of a worldly champion is meaningless and it's minuscule compared to the eternal victory of eternal life over an eternal death where no one can ever say to you, your day is over. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see the glory of the victory found in the resurrection of Christ. And it is, Father, our prayer that we would know who we truly are. And if that means that we are tied to the weak and shifting sands of this world Help us to understand where that leads. But if it means, Father, that we have built upon the rock who is Christ, let us ever rejoice in the knowledge that when you see us, you see his righteousness and his victory belongs to us through faith. In his name we pray. Amen.